The history of astronomy is a history of receding frontiers. The more advanced our telescopes and observatories become, the farther back we're able to look in the universe, developing a more comprehensive picture of the universe around us, all the way out to the most distant frontiers of what we can possibly observe. We push these frontiers in a slew of complementary ways. We send observatories to space so we don't have to fight with the atmosphere. We develop better cameras and better instruments to better measure the universe. We look in a wide variety of wavelengths. And perhaps most straightforwardly and most powerfully, we build telescopes bigger than ever before to gather more light and increase the resolution. Right now, the largest optical telescopes on Earth are in a class where they're about 10 meters in diameter. But in the 2020s, we're going to surpass that and enter the era of 30 meter class telescopes. Two of them, the European Extremely Large Telescope and the Giant Magellan Telescope are already under construction, but the third one, the 30-meter telescope, has not yet begun construction. What's going on? Find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. I'm so pleased to welcome to the show our guest, Dr. Gordon Squires. Gordon is a fantastic scientist and astronomer who has the honor of being the vice president of external relations at the 30-meter telescope. And there's a lot going on in terms of why this telescope is so crucial for understanding the universe and also why it's so controversial. Gordon, it's my pleasure to have you here and welcome to the program. Ethan, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you for this chance to chat. Yeah, I appreciate it so much. And so as our inaugural podcast of the 2020s, um, right now, when we take a look at how we're viewing the universe, we do this with the best and largest telescopes that astronomy has to offer. But right now, the largest ones are on the order of about 10 meters. Going up by a factor of three is going to increase our light gathering power by about a factor of 10 and is also going to increase our resolution by about a factor of three. From a scientific point of view, in terms of what we can learn about the universe, there are always the unknowns where we don't know what we're going to find. But we already know that there's a fantastic suite of scientific evidence that this new generation of telescopes will reveal. Can you tell us some of the highlights of what this new generation of 30-meter class observatories is going to bring to humanity's set of knowledge? Well, that's a great question. Um, I think, you know, TMT and the other 30-meter class telescopes are all designed really as observatory class uh, uh, facilities. And this means that these telescopes can study objects, you know, right in our cosmic backyard out to almost the beginning of time. In our own solar system at the distance of Jupiter, TMT will have a resolution of something like 25 kilometers. So imagine studying volcanism on the moons of Jupiter or ice flows right here on Earth without having to send a probe to go and look at these things in orbit. 
if you go to the other end of the universe, only a few hundred million years after the Big Bang, uh, when the universe transitioned from being dark to light, and the moment when the very, very first stars began to shine in the universe, TMT is uniquely positioned to look for this first generation of stars and see their spectral signatures and see the moment from when the universe went from dark to light. So it sounds like there's this whole class of phenomena, you know, with something like the 30 meter telescope, if we can sufficiently account for the atmosphere, when we talk about the enhancements that this is going to bring, you know, right now, we're used to thinking about the Hubble Space Telescope and the wonderful thing and all the wonderful sights that Hubble can bring to our eyes. We've been able to see volcanic plumes on Jupiter's moon Io. We've been able to see um, geysers getting spit out off of Saturn's icy moon Enceladus. Um, all of this from not even in situ orbits, but from Hubble Space Telescope's view around Earth. When you talk about the maximum resolution that something like the 30-meter telescope can reach, we're talking about achieving resolutions a dozen times better when we can sufficiently account for the atmosphere than Hubble can achieve. We're talking about going deeper and fainter, closer to where the very first stars in the universe form. We're talking about possibly even doing direct imaging of close-by exoplanets, planets around stars other than our own. These seem like tremendously compelling science goals that, that we can't really reveal any other way. This seems like this new advance is going to give us an eye on the universe in the way that nothing else will be able to compete with. No, I agree with that. Uh, and those are just some of the things you know that I think are easy to understand at some level. The real power of TMT is not only in its imaging and an ability to re, uh, return these super sharp images, images much sharper, as you said, than, than Hubble can achieve or any other telescope on the ground can achieve, but also through spectroscopy. And one of the things I think that has become so exciting in the last – decade or so of research is studying exoplanets or studying planets around stars other than our own. And what will TMT see in the atmosphere of these exoplanets? We're well positioned to look at a few thousand uh, nearby exoplanets and look for signatures of molecular oxygen in the atmosphere, for example, atmospheres that potentially life like ours could breathe. And that'll come through spectroscopic advances, which uh, which is where the real power, I think, of TMT will be. And I think this is a really important point. You know, when we study the universe today, we we say, okay, I'm going to look at the most distant galaxies there are, and Hubble is great at finding those with its long exposures. And we can say, okay, I'm going to look for exoplanets, and we have techniques like uh, like we saw NASA's Kepler leverage during the 2010s, and that NASA's TESS is doing right now, where all of these orbiting planets reveal themselves through a certain signature. But if you want to confirm these planets, if you want to confirm these distant galaxies, you need a spectroscopic follow-up. You need to take the light from those stars, from those galaxies, from those planets, break it up into those individual wavelengths, and all of a sudden, you can do some tremendously powerful science that you can't do with just these, you know, pretty images alone, even at high resolution, you can determine 
what redshift they're at, you can determine what types and what quantities of various elements and molecules are present there. You can learn, as you alluded to, if an exoplanet that's possibly the size of Earth in a in the right location for liquid water, you can learn what its atmosphere is made out of and looking for that key signature of maybe oxygen and nitrogen in its atmosphere. This is really um, our first true chance at finding, you know, what astronomers typically call Earth 2.0. Yeah, that's right. And we hear maybe a little bit too often sometimes uh, that we found an Earth twin. But but that's a you know, and that's from current generation telescopes, and and that's a a really hard statement to make. Uh, understanding what a planet looks like in terms of habitability is very very complicated, and it requires you to do things like probe deeply into the atmosphere and see what the chemical composition is, uh, have a good understanding of the temperature and size of the planet as well. So these, well, it's, it's very tempting right now to say we found Earth 2.0. We haven't yet. We found some really interesting candidates, and that's what TMT and the other 30-meter class telescopes are going to explore and more. Yeah, I think it's real important to note that, you know, we we very commonly use phrases like Earth twin, but our our eyes on the universe aren't really good enough yet to know whether this is a twin, a cousin, or just an unrelated lookalike out there. And, you know, that's that's something that the next generation of telescopes will reveal. Now, when we talk about TMT, we can compare this with the other two I would say next generation observatories that are being built. The European Extremely Large Telescope, which is going to be slightly larger at 39 meters, and the Giant Magellan Telescope, which is going to be slightly smaller at 25 meters, but which has the advantage of which may be the very first to start taking data from the distant universe. The 30 meter telescope is in between at about 30 meters in diameter, and much like the other two telescopes, the mirrors have started being produced, the instruments have started being produced, um, that, that much progress has been made in the design, in the planning, and in building the, the component parts of the observatory. Um, but unlike the other two, which are both located in the Chilean Andes and are in the Southern Hemisphere, the TMT, the 30-meter telescope, is slated to be constructed atop Mauna Kea, in the Northern Hemisphere. Can you tell us a little bit about why it's so important to both have this telescope be in the Northern Hemisphere and also what makes Mauna Kea such a special location to have an observatory like this? Well, the obvious thing I think about having coverages in both the North and the South is we would like to explore the entire universe. We've never been a people who been satisfied with only seeing half the picture. And so, that, I mean, that's an easy answer. We want to ex be able to see the entire sky. And with the other two 30-meter class telescopes being in Chile, that leaves much of the northern hemisphere unaccessible to them. There's other advantages as well if we're a little bit separated in longitude, which means that in the areas where we can see things, uh, uh, in the same piece of sky, we can we can follow them at slightly different times of the day, and there's advantages in that and studying variability and so on. 
Um, so those are some of the characteristics why why it's both good to be in the north, but it's also handy to have some overlap with these telescopes and and with the the LSST, the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, which will be surveying the entire sky from Chile. We can we can view a lot of the regions of the universe that that it will be exploring, as will the other thirty meter telescopes be able to follow up with with that, their discoveries as well. Now, but Mauna Kea is, uh, has a long history of being really one of the premier sites in the world for astronomy, certainly the best site in the Northern Hemisphere and, and arguably amongst the very best in the world with the outstanding sites in Chile. And it has a, an interesting history, actually, which maybe you want to get into later. I'm not sure of how astronomy came to Mauna Kea, some of the initial site testing that was done there uh, by uh, by native, native Hawaiians, actually. And, and, and but, but what they discovered back in the 60s when they looked at Mauna Kea is that no other site had been tested with the characteristics that Mauna Kea has in terms of dryness, number of clear nights, uh, nice, cool temperatures, stable weather, that sort of thing. Yeah, I think this is really important because when we talk about an astronomical site, what comes to mind for a lot of people are really just two things. One of them is elevation because obviously if you can get higher and higher and higher to, at an elevation, you can get you know above more of Earth's atmosphere and that's less atmosphere to have to fight with in terms of viewing the universe, right? What you can see at sea level is going to be a lot blurrier than what you can see atop a very high mountain when you look out at the universe, it's sort of like how when you're at the bottom of a swimming pool um, and you look out into the universe beyond that, you have an enormous amount of ocean to contend with. If you're just slightly beneath the surface, you might have a lot easier time seeing out than you are further down. And that's an obvious one. But what I think most people don't appreciate is what you're sort of talking about in terms of the stillness of the air and the relative calmness of the temperature and the fact that you get laminar rather than turbulent airflow and the fact that you have so many clear nights with so few clouds in the sky as well as so little light pollution. As far as I can tell, when you put all of these factors together and you talk about what type of data am I able to get in my telescope? How well can my adaptive optics system compensate for the atmosphere? Mauna Kea really seems to be the number one site in the world, followed by the sites atop the Chilean Andes, which are the number two sites in the world. And then everything else, you know, is sort of, you know, competing for number three. But I think what's number one and what's number two, I don't know that there are really any arguments to be made counter to that. I agree. And it's no coincidence that the current generation largest telescopes in the world for the optical near infrared are located in Mauna Kea and in Chile for that reason. Now there's a third site uh, in the Canary Islands, La Palma, and that that does have the largest optical near infrared telescope in the world. Um, they're still developing some of their instrumentation and so we'll see their science unfold I think more fully in the years ahead. But these sites uh, are are all excellent, and there's no coincidence that the the best telescopes in the world right now are there, and that the best telescopes in the world for the next generation are planned to be there. Yeah, and if you start looking at La Palma, I think it's very interesting because they have many of the properties that Mauna Kea does. They are at a high elevation. They do have 
cool, dry air. The atmosphere is relatively still and stable. Um, but it seems that to me there are there are two drawbacks that are very clear if you do a direct comparison. And one is that its elevation is significantly lower. I think we're talking about almost almost a mile lower at the top of La Palma as opposed to the top of Mauna Kea. And it's also at a much higher latitude, which means you'll get slightly better views of the northern pole region of the sky, but you're going to lose about 10 to 15 to maybe even 20 degrees of what a site like Mauna Kea can get you into the southern hemisphere if you go to a more northern latitude like you have at La Palma. Yeah, that's right. Um, you can still see things like the Galactic Center and one of the real key science cases for TMT, you know, is studying the orbits of stars around the black hole at the center of our galaxy and providing some unprecedented tests of, of general relativity. So you can still see that from La Palma. But you talked about the altitude and it's uh, not only that there's more atmosphere above you at La Palma, but it's also a warmer site. The average temperature at La Palma, uh, the mean nighttime temperature is almost five degrees warmer than Mauna Kea. So that also uh, presents some challenges. Um, we've looked really extensively at the full science case that can be done or we want to be done with TMT and it can all be done at La Palma. It's a bit harder. There's no doubt, but it, it, it can be done. That's great to hear, you know, and when you talk about something like uh, a few degree temperature difference, a lot of people I don't think appreciate how that can make a difference, particularly when you're trying to take infrared observations of the sky. You know, can you talk a little bit about how just a few degrees of extra temperature can make infrared observations a little bit more challenging? Yeah, so, you know, Colder temperatures obviously are are a requisite for infrared astronomy, and that's why a lot of infrared astronomy is done in space. Um, what you need to look for are nights where the temperature is cooler, and not only that, but there's less water vapor above the observatory. When you find those nights, which exist on Mauna Kea, exist in Chile, exist in La Palma, those are the nights which are optimal for being able to study things in the near-infrared or, or mid-infrared. On Mauna Kea, there's about a little over twice as many nights a year where the conditions are pristine for those types of observations. Um, so that, that means that there's more opportunities to do it on Mauna Kea, but, but it does mean that there's a significant number of nights still in La Palma where you can do it as well of order 50 or 60 a year. So it becomes more challenging. You have to be more clever in your scheduling of when the conditions are right to do these types of, uh, of programs, but it's not impossible. Yeah. You know, about 20 years ago, I was applying to graduate schools, and uh, one of the schools I applied to was University of Hawaii at Manoa. And when I went to visit there, uh, I was introduced to what was uh, then known as UKIRT, which is the UK Infrared Telescope. And, you know, as far as my understanding went, this was maybe the best infrared telescope on Earth at the time, along with a few others like like uh, two mass and, you know, some some other some other telescopes that we had but this was one of the most spectacular ones and it is also on the top of Mauna Kea it's a fantastic site for doing this infrared observing and if you talk about comparing something like the science we were getting from UKIRT with the science that we could get from TMT on Mauna Kea 
Um, I think it's it's just remarkable. You're talking about a telescope about ten times the size with better instrumentation. I I would dare to say that this this roughly means that whatever you could observe with that previous generation of telescopes in say you know an hour of observing time you could observe that same object get 10 times better resolution and instead of an hour to collect that data you could collect the same amount of light in 36 seconds right and you know the thing that's interesting too about ukert is if you look at the amount of science that comes out of ground-based observatories, there's a lot of ways you could measure this. But if you just look at the number of science publications using data from various ground-based telescopes, UKIRT consistently ranks in the top five uh, in the world for that. And it is not a young telescope. Um, and it is, as you said, doesn't have the capabilities that we'll be able to enjoy with TMT, um, but it's still remarkably scientifically productive. So it's the tip of the iceberg of what we will see when we get something like TMT. I mean, and this this is fantastic. I think if you are someone who's interested in astronomy and the frontiers of astronomy and what we know about the universe and what we have left to learn, I think the science case for a 30 meter class telescope in the northern hemisphere to go along with the two that we're building in the southern hemisphere is overwhelming. But I'd like to shift gears for a little bit and talk about the controversy surrounding the construction of the 30-meter telescope. All three of these telescopes, TMT, ELT, and GMT, they all, you know, were conceived, you know, in prior decades. Um, the science case was made, was very strong, and these were the three that were really pushed forward by both public and private partnerships. And whereas everyone has begun constructing their mirrors, constructing their instruments, both GMT and ELT broke ground and began constructing their observatories years ago. The plan originally was to begin construction of TMT in 2015, and due to a variety of factors, construction still has not begun. And in fact, you know, part of the reason we're talking about both the Mauna Kea site and the La Palma site is because it seems like um, it's not very certain that TMT will be welcome at the summit of Mauna Kea. Would you, would you like to sort of give us a little bit of background and tell us uh, from your perspective what it is that's gone on surrounding this issue? Well, there's no short answer to that, Ethan. So maybe you'll, you'll want to help me break this up a little bit. But, um, you know, I think the story of astronomy in Hawaii, it's important to realize that this came from the community. And it started in the 1960s when there was a, a massive tsunami, which really devastated the east side of Hawaii Island, the big island, and the city of Hilo, Hawaii in particular. Folks there uh, started to look for ways to revitalize the, the island, revitalize the state. And this was the same time in the state where agriculture was starting to go into a steep decline. Sugar was moving out of uh, Hawaii, for example. And so the, the main economic driver in the state at that time really was, was trending only towards tourism. So the folks from, from Hilo and the business community in particular started to wonder – 
is astronomy at all viable in Hawaii or on the Big Island in particular? There was some some uh, existing facilities on Maui, and so they wanted to see what what would be possible on Mauna Kea. And so at the invitation of the local community in Hawaii, um, some astronomers from Arizona came and took a look at Mauna Kea. And then, then a person named Alika Herring, who is a native Hawaiian, did some site testing on Mauna Kea. And he had been involved in site testing at various other places as well. But he said that, you know, Mauna Kea was the best site he has ever tested anywhere in the world. And that was a, a revelation, I think, in Hawaii. And it was the beginning of astronomy coming there. And again, you know, it's important to, there's a lot has happened since that moment. We'll talk about that. And not, not all of it by any means has been good. There's There's been some serious missteps by the astronomy community in the interim. But it's important to remember that it came to Hawaii initially as uh, a community invited effort, as something the community really wanted to bring to the island, to the state uh, for an opportunity for everybody. And that it was coming out of those in the Hawaiian culture who tested the site, uh, who said that this is really the place, the best place to be doing astronomy from any place they'd ever seen. So that was the beginning of astronomy in, uh, on Mauna Kea. No, that that's a that's a fantastic story and some fantastic background. And you know, I think when when you look at the relationship between um, Hawaii and the astronomy community, um, I think it is it is one that has a history since the 1960s of collaboration, and it really brings up this issue of on the one hand you have all of the people who live in Hawaii, who who benefit from the economic partnership, who benefit from having, you know, the additional tourism and travel that this brings in, the additional boost to the economy, the additional boost of economic and intellectual development in Hawaii for having this world-class scientific facility there. But also there's this issue of, uh, of recognizing that in in all of this, the wishes of the overall uh, population of Hawaii and the wishes of the native community of Hawaii, there's not necessarily a one-to-one overlap there. Whereas if you look at who supports the building of TMT, for example, um, you know you can point to stats and polls that show that among Hawaiians altogether – um, it has overwhelming support. I think the latest poll I saw from Civil Beat, which is a um, which is a news outlet in Hawaii, uh, showed that there's about seventy percent support for building TMT and only about thirty percent who aren't in favor of it. But among the native population in Hawaii, um, you're really seeing that it's you know you don't really get fifty percent on either front that you don't have fifty percent supporting it you've got right around fifty percent opposing it with a small amount of undecided um and this I think is a real uh it's a real different point whereas in the 1960s I feel there was a much bigger groundswell for support of let's do this let's boost the economy let's boost education let's let's reap all of these benefits I think looking back now, 
uh, more than 50 years later, there are a lot of younger people who are not only looking back farther to the history of Hawaii, which involves, you know, let's let's be frank, a lot of imperialism, colonization, Mm -hmm. exploitation and legal violence. I mean, the United States did overthrow the Hawaiian government in 1893. And an official investigation that occurred afterward did conclude that the United States diplomatic and military representatives had abused their authority and were responsible for the change in government. You know, the U.S. government is not really a government known for um, officially apologizing for its actions. And the overthrow of the native Hawaiian government in the late 1800s is one of only five times in U.S. history that the government has formally apologized for its actions. Um, so I think there are a lot of people, particularly a lot of people among the native population now, who are looking at a longer period of history of Hawaii and are really concerned that um that these agreements that were entered into in the 1960s were were really entered into um under this banner of oppression and colonialism that they would like to throw off entirely now and if that happens obviously that's going to mean a big economic blow to the economy of Hawaii it's going to mean a transformative blow to astronomy in Hawaii. Um, but it's also, I think, indicative of both a cultural awakening and this tension between um, the the older generation of Hawaiians who, who believes this is good overall for Hawaii and a younger generation of Native Hawaiians who believes that it isn't. Um, and this is, of course, an enormous can of worms, but but we're here together and, you know, the can is open. So I think we, we have to address it. Yeah. You know, what would you, what would you, where would you like to begin a discussion of this? Well, I really appreciate that you brought up all of those points. I think often outside of Hawaii, there is uh, not a deep understanding of the very complicated issues that that are going on within the state for all of its people. And, and you touched on a lot of them. Um, I mean, one way to to take the next step in the history, I guess, if you go after the 60s, I think it was it becomes more of a, a mixed period for astronomy and for Hawaii in general. Um, you know, after this initial phase, the first observatories start to get built in Hawaii and their outstanding observatories start producing uh, amazing science and, uh, you know, revolutionizing our way of seeing the universe. And that was fantastic. But but it wasn't done in a very uh, – in, in a way that involved a lot of consultation or, or even consideration of, of these other issues of what are the culturally sensitive sites on Mauna Kea and how to involve a community that supports astronomy, but nevertheless doesn't want uh, astronomy at any cost or at cost to their culture or, or places that are special to them. So, so astronomy went in through a phase where we could have been a lot better neighbors and listeners and uh, partners in Hawaii. And in parallel with that, you know, after a hundred years of imperialism and colonialism in Hawaii. You know, the Hawaii Constitution was revised and, and it began a real beginning of a, 
of, a, of an understanding of what it means to be Hawaiian and, and what it had meant uh, to have suffered through this long period of oppression of your rights as a native Hawaiian in, in Hawaii. And that really started to um, started to grow in the 1990s when the constitution of Hawaii was changed. And so, you know, you have a lot of folks who grew up in that era. And on one hand, you have astronomy doing great things, but not necessarily being a great neighbor. And at the same time, a growing realization that not just astronomy and Mauna Kea, but that your rights to speak Hawaiian were severely curtailed and it almost became an extinct language, that cultural practices were either um, uh, commercialized or outlawed completely. And so that there was, you know, a real effort to eradicate or suppress the Hawaiian culture. And people started to realize that. And these two things were sort of happened in tandem. And then you get to the turn of the century and some audits come out of how the mountain was managed by the University of Hawaii. And these were really not favorable audits. There were severe uh, environmental issues um, with how the observatories were constructed or operated, uh, environmental and cultural issues as well, uh, issues about how the mountain was maintained. And so it was a real sort of a change started to happen around the turn of the century where people were were more and more uh, understanding these historical wrongs against Hawaiian people and in that era as well and understanding that astronomy had not been a, a, a great neighbor in Hawaii. So that's sort of chapter two, I guess. Well, at least the next chapter in this story. I don't know if it's chapter two or chapter 20, but, but that's sort of a middle phase that tees up uh, where TMT enters the picture a few years later. Yeah, and I think this is really fascinating because I think that the astronomy community has sort of, you know, just like I would say there was the difference uh, between uh, the older generation and the younger generation in uh, in terms of the Native Hawaiian population, I think that the astronomy community has sort of had this dichotomy as well, where particularly uh, earlier uh, in the 2010s, um, there were many astronomers who had been successful astronomers for a long time who made some very public and very offensive statements uh, towards the native Hawaiian population um, using words that I, I won't necessarily repeat here because I don't want to give them a voice. Um, Whereas many of the younger generation of astronomers, and a few among the older generation, of course, um, were really talking about, hey, you know, there is this larger issue at play in terms of native voices being erased and in terms of self-determination not really being offered as an option, um, where many things – um, you know, have been done since then to sort of reach out and maybe amend these these wrongs that have been done. You know, the the Imaloa Astronomy Center has been built, developed, and expanded, and it's dedicated to Hawaiian culture, history, and particularly the intersection of Hawaiian culture and history with the night sky. And so what I think a lot of people are are looking at now is how can astronomers be better neighbors? How can we 
install long-term plans and initiative that will better the future and career prospect of young Hawaiians? How can astronomers become uh, integrated members of the Hawaiian community where they work as partners rather than, you know, I would say in the past they've been decision makers that have come in with a plan that they were going to execute and it's sort of nice that members of the native community were on board but that wasn't really um a decision making body how can astronomers um make their case to the native population of hawaiians particularly when they feel they've been marginalized and maybe capitalized upon maybe even unethically in the past how how can astronomers go about doing right when they've been part of a system that has done wrong to this community in the past? Yeah, well, let's talk about that. I, I do want to come back to the next chapter of what happened when TMT entered. But let, let's leap ahead again because your question's really interesting of, of what happens now. Um, you know, within the astronomy community, there's been a lot of unfortunate statements and uninformed statements made by by everybody both the young and the the more seasoned astronomers let's say and it's i i don't think anybody are necessarily bad people but it's become out of not really understanding the situation in hawaii as people in hawaii do it, it, it's it's remarkable how different things look on the mainland from how they look there now now having said that um there's a few things that are really unique to Hawaii. One is, as an indigenous people within the United States, Native Hawaiians are the only people that do not have a nation-to-nation -nation treaty with the United States. They have no sovereign voice who speaks for Native Hawaiians. And that's a challenge for them, certainly for everyone, but um, it means that there's no one voice. Over the years, many attempts have been made within the native Hawaiian community to find a voice and to find a unified direction that they want to go. And th those haven't been successful because they haven't been able to come to consensus on what that should look like. And it's a hard question. I think everybody recognizes that. There were efforts by Senator Inouye, Senator Akaka, uh, both U.S. Senator, Senator Akaka was native Hawaiian, you know, to, to aid these efforts. And, and it didn't get there. And so that's part of the challenge we have now in Hawaii is there's it's a big table around it which everybody is sitting and there's a lot of voices that all need to be heard um, and and so it, it's a it's a conversation that takes time and that's part of the story too of why TMT is still slowly but respectfully going forward because we've been having conversations like this now for for part of 20 years and and the conversations have expanded significantly but it's a challenge you asked about how can how can astronomers respond to issues and be better partners with hawaiians well it it takes some time to get to know them all because there isn't a single voice that speaks for them all so that's that's the first part of it yeah and that's that's a a challenging part you know i think i think everyone recognizes that astronomy is kind of unique among the sciences because the sky itself 
is so universally accessible wherever you go and that this cosmic story that we see when we look out at the universe is something that's shared not only between all humans and creatures on earth but everywhere in the universe and that knowing something about the universe is available for everyone to share and delight in this goal that we all have of increasing the knowledge and understanding and awe and wonder of the universe it's a goal that not only the astronomy community has but the overwhelming majority of the world including the indigenous population of hawaii now since tmt first wanted to break ground about four years ago um there has been this um I would say this enhancement or maybe this acceleration of the cultural awakening that you sort of alluded to starting back in the 1990s. Um, And over the last four years, I know you have heard a lot of concerns from the native community, from the indigenous community. Um, What would, what would you say, or what would you sort of maybe share with the rest of the world that may not know some of the lessons that you've learned since that time, what what particular lessons have you learned over the last four years that you think um, that you think the rest of the world would maybe benefit from learning as well? There's a few things I've learned. So I, I spend you know my time I spend most of my time talking with people. Uh, and, you know, a good fraction of that, 50% maybe, is speaking, you know, talking with, spending time with people who oppose TMT. So, spent a lot of time listening and being part of conversations on, on both, on all sides of the issue. Some interesting things I learned first on the positive side, I guess, is uh, in the Hawaiian creation chant, chant the Kumulipu. They talk about uh, a cosmology, which is actually remarkably similar to Big Bang cosmology that we have in the astronomy uh, community, a transition where the universe is created in perfect order and darkness and transforms into the chaotic light. And when I tell the story about how TMT is looking for the first generation of stars, some native Hawaiians have said, oh, that's exactly the moment we have in our creation chant where the universe went from dark to light. So they, there's a remarkable synergy there. Um, I've spent a lot of time with the uh, Polynesian navigators, the folks who uh, navigated the world using Hawaiian voyaging uh, canoes. And, and, and many of them are strong supporters of astronomy because they, they see that the voyaging and how they use the stars in order to navigate the world is very similar to how we use the stars and distant galaxies and more to navigate the universe. And so they see a remarkable synergy between, uh, between Hawaiian culture and, and astronomy. And that's why, you know, again, you, you said earlier, there's around half of the native Hawaiian population, maybe a bit less that supports TMT supports astronomy in general, and that's their voices. Now, on the other side, there's some folks I meet with who very candidly say, you know, this isn't really about you. Uh, This is about all these other issues that nobody has listened to us um, and still aren't listening to us. And so 
because they're watching you, this is a chance for us to to make sure somebody listens to us now. And, and uh, you know, I support that, actually. I think over the last five years, you said there's been a remarkable transformation about sensitivity to Indigenous people issues. I think that's a worldwide phenomenon. It's not just restricted to Hawaii. And that's a good thing. Um, if TMT can be a catalyst for that, uh, that would be beautiful. And if a solution or solutions can start to emerge from Hawaii that could be a model for the rest of the world, wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't that be a contribution that astronomy could give to the world in a way probably we never imagined? Um, you know, and there's a amongst those who who just oppose there. There's a, a, a large range of a spectrum of why they oppose. Some just oppose TMT. They say that telescope shouldn't be built. Some say that um, there should be no astronomy at all on Mauna Kea, that Mauna Kea should revert to its pristine state. Now, this goes back over a couple hundred years before the uh, the the abolition of the uh, of the kapu system in in Hawaii, where Mauna Kea was not accessible to anybody, it was only accessible to very few, the alii, and some would argue you should go back to that era. Some would argue that mixed use is okay, including the the quarrying and mining that Native Hawaiians did on the mountain, and and so it. it I, I don't think I'm painting a very clear picture here, Ethan, but it's a complicated thing I've learned that that there are so many issues, uh, there's so many voices. But I think the one common thread is that that everybody, astronomers, Native Hawaiians, the people of Hawaii, the people outside of Hawaii, as we're seeing this as an opportunity where maybe some good can emerge. It requires these conversations. It requires people to take more time. I think, than they have to really become educated and understand the issues. And I, I say that a lot to a lot of uh, my colleagues as mainland astronomers who have very strong opinions, but maybe don't really understand deeply the issues in Hawaii. So it's, it takes time. But, um, you know, we're in a universe that's over 13 billion years old. So maybe maybe this time we can invest now is is well spent. And that's and that brings up a really interesting point, because on the one hand, um, I think you are absolutely correct in bringing up uh, the rights of indigenous people. Um, and in particular, I know many of the issues I've I've heard from from indigenous people in Hawaii and from Polynesians in general uh, talking about this issue is that um, they feel that the outcome is already decided and that they their ability to choose to say no to this this is this is really the first time in their history um over the last you know 100 plus years where they actually have possibly an opportunity to say no and have no be a meaningful answer to something to something being being imposed on them from what they see as a foreign outside force that that i've heard from many of them that this public perception is that the tmt will eventually be built atop mauna kea irrespective of any actions taken or opinions held by the indigenous people of hawaii I've heard comparisons to the outcome being inevitable, just as it was at Standing Rock. Mm. I've heard that um, that there's this perception among the indigenous people of Hawaii that 
um, the mainland astronomers, as you call them, have this misconception that this is about one particular telescope or astronomers not doing enough to support Hawaii or outreach and education or some other easily solved issue instead of this really being the flashpoint for a discussion around indigenous rights and self-determinism and that that's the real issue at play here. No, that's absolutely right. And and I think it's taken some time because it's been on both sides of the issue. It's been just no, uh, no, you can't build or no, you can't stop us. And I think now we're, we're getting to a place where it's maybe no or or no but or well, yes, but you know what I mean, that there's conversations are starting to happen where these bigger issues are being addressed and people are moving off entrenched positions and saying, okay, what can we do uh, to address these, these, these bigger issues? Because there are good people on all sides of this, obviously. I, I uh, and, and I think it's taken people a little bit of time to figure, you know, to build the trust in order to explore these things together. And it's not just astronomy and cultural practitioners who need to enter this conversation. It is all of Hawaii, if not more, uh, and that requires leadership from the state, from the county, from all of Hawaii, because these issues are, are not really just about astronomy and TMT. But what I am seeing, and it's a, it's a little bit exciting, is is some movement against from these just entrenched positions where the only answer is no. But now there's something tagged onto that of, well, no, but let's at least talk some more and maybe maybe we can find a way. I hope so. Yeah, I mean, I hope so, too. Because I, I look at this from this dual perspective, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit lucky that I'm not an observational astronomer, so I don't have the same stake in one particular telescope being at one particular location. Um, but, but from my perspective, on the one hand, I see like, okay, let's look at this from the astrophysicist perspective, where, of course, I want the best tools in the best location that Earth has to offer in the endeavor to explore and understand the universe. That I want these tools on as fast a timetable as possible, and I want these tools in the best location as possible. Um, I also see this, you know, oh, but we have to do it ethically part to the conversation, too, that you can't just steamroll the wishes of the indigenous population and you can't, you know, just dishonor their traditions or their wants or their voices in terms of getting the science that you want. You know, I think as particularly astronomers where light pollution nearby can destroy an astronomical observing site. And we are seeing now as we turn the page from the 2010s to the 2020s and start to enter the era of mega constellations in the night sky, we are seeing like a much greater economic force than astronomers come and literally, I would say, just begin to plunder the night sky for their own gain. Um, much to the detriment of astronomers everywhere on Earth. Um, you know, when we talk about issues like self-determination and the rights of everyone to their sky and the rights of everyone to their own native sites, um, as astronomers, we absolutely cannot be hypocritical in this. Either the self-determinism of 
every native population across the world, everywhere in the world is meaningful or it's not meaningful anywhere, including for ourselves and our rights to a pristine sky. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, that is a that's a nice segue, if I may use that to talk about the next chapter in the TMT story in Hawaii, because, you know, if it started out with very pure uh, motives in the 60s and then had a darker chapter of astronomy in Hawaii in the 90s and so on, let's say um, things, you know, I think some of our better moments occurred after that. So in terms of management of the mountain and in terms of being responsive to the audits, you know, University of Hawaii has gone a long ways to address those concerns. I won't speak for them, but but it is important to realize they have done a lot in order to address the concerns that were uncovered at the turn of the century. And and how Mauna Kea is managed now uh, is, is vastly different than when it was 20 years ago. That's one thing. But secondly, for TMT, I mean, we entered – um, the community. Well, we didn't enter the community, first of all. I mean, we were part of the community of our partners, Japan, India, our Japan, Canada, Caltech, University of California had been in Hawaii for the better part of 50 years in some cases. So, so when TMT chose Hawaii, it was with an understanding that things had to be different. Now, I don't think we understood how different they had to be, but we went in with a different mindset. And Things are important to realize that in terms of decision making, the site was selected for TMT came from extensive inputs from the native Hawaiian community who said, you know, don't put it up with those other observatories, put it over here on the northern plateau because there are no places where we do cultural practices there. It doesn't interfere with our viewplanes. Um, and, and in fact, many of the uh, leaders of the protest uh, when they testified in a, a contested case for our conservation district use permit, said they'd never been to the TMT site prior to 2015 for any reason. And so there was – that's just one example, but there was a lot of consultation and thought and decision-making that came out, came out of the Hawaiian community that put TMT where it was, that informed the design of the telescope, that made sure environmentally it was sound and would not impact the aquifer or, or uh, any endangered flora or fauna and that sort of thing. So it was a, you know, it was a big beginning of a transformation. And, you know, I, people say, did you do enough? I, obviously, we didn't do enough, but it was a real change in how astronomy was a member of the community when TMT uh, selected Mauna Kea as the preferred site to build. And so I'd say, you know, it, in parallel with that was this, 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 this world changing and these other issues arising in parallel that said indigenous people's issues need to be addressed. And so these th two things merged in 2015 and afterwards. But, but, uh, you know, I think astronomy is forever changed in and and I'm not sure people realize that TMT had never been this force coming in saying, we're just going to do this at any cost and this way. It was a tremendously community-led uh, initiative and defined as such, including extensive inputs from the Native Hawaiian community and, and decisions from the Native Hawaiian community on, on how and where TMT should be built and operated. So the world has changed, and uh, you know, obviously, we have further to go. But uh, a, a page really has been turned, I think, and and 
even though it's sometimes hard to be associated with TMT because some of, especially my younger colleagues say, well, you're you know, colonialist or you don't understand. I sometimes think, well, I, I wish you understood the whole picture and you will someday because it's not that easy, but there's a lot of good that's been done on both sides of this and, and we're moving towards something even better, I, I hope. No, and I think that's a really, that's a really uh, nuanced perspective that you add are uh, sort of adding to this story because I I agree with you you know I've been around astronomy long enough that I know okay like TMT really more so than any prior telescope I would say any telescope prior to the 2010s on Mauna Kea has been more concerned with the overall impact with the concerns of the indigenous population with the concerns of you know with the religious concerns with the with the um environmental concerns with the aquifer concerns of how this telescope will impact Hawaii than than probably any telescope or observatory up top Mauna Kea that came before and so you know, I understand it's very frustrating when, you know, you are part of a collaboration that takes five novel steps forward that no one else has taken. And still, you're, you know, serving as, you know, the, uh, the whipping post for all of these concerns that have been festering for more than a century, um, that, you know, you're really just, um, I'll say the one being, you're the one receiving the punishment, even though you're not, uh, you're certainly not the one most deserving of this type of punishment. Um, and then there is, of course, that other side of the coin that, you know, for over a hundred years, you've had these indigenous voices that have been speaking that have not been listened to. And finally, um, this, this one telescope has given them the visibility where they can suddenly be seen on a larger scale and now their concerns are being heard. Right. You seem to be hoping for some sort of cultural synthesis where the, the hopes and fears and, um, and concerns of the native population, the indigenous population of Hawaii and the hopes and fears and concerns and needs of the astronomy community um, can come together to arrive at a solution where TMT winds up being built atop Mauna Kea, where the future of Hawaii and astronomy will become a strong partnership that's finally done in the right way, and where um, where the mountain itself is well stewarded in the eyes of everyone, including and especially in terms of the indigenous population. Yeah, and more. I mean, the issues about management of Hawaiian homelands and uh, opportunities for Hawaiians to fully engage in all opportunities in Hawaii are 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 available. You know, and more. So I I think it's not just astronomy and. Native Hawaiians and cultural practitioners in Mauna Kea is part of the conversation now. It, it's even bigger than that. Uh, so I hope for all of those things that there is uh, real change, change in our lifetime for those for those things, and that it is a, a beacon again for the world to see how this can be done finally and done done what done appropriately, done well. 
Yeah. And, you know, I, I understand it's very frustrating to work in an environment where, you know, it, I, I view this as sort of like the, the Twitter problem where, you know, you hear the loudest voices on on a side instead of the nuanced voices that are taking everything fairly and equitably into account. I see, for example, I I am aware that there's a lot of misinformation out there, both from, you know, the indigenous population who, you know, are painting astronomers in sort of this demonic light by putting words into their mouth that are even worse than what even the worst astronomers have said about the native population and i think there are also um there's also misinformation being put out by the astronomy community uh that's sort of painting this caricature of the native hawaiian community um you know people are bringing up arguments that have been discredited long ago but they're still loudly touting them on both sides and i would like to see an environment where this discussion can play out publicly where where more people will have more accurate information without this um without this vitriol and this misinformation leading people astray you know the for me the worst part about this is washing uh, what what is colloquially known as a gish gallop unfold where a lot of people are just throwing out discredited arguments that don't have any merit about either why this telescope shouldn't be built or why the native community is being disingenuous and i don't think either of those actions furthers where things want to go no, I agree. And I think there's a third voice too. And it's more the the people who you, you said it's a Twitter phenomenon. I saw something on Twitter. I am outraged on it. I like it. I retweet it. I move on. And there's a lot of voices who aren't really part of this conversation who have joined it and have amplified it. And, and, and in particular, in, I'll be honest, in the celebrity sphere, uh, Hollywood celebrities who have just not, some of them, not been well informed uh, what's going on at all. But have really added their voice to the conversation. In a few cases, that has helped. In the majority of cases, it really hasn't. It's inflamed a situation and got a lot of people retweeting and, and liking things that they don't have a deep understanding about. And that's, that is frustrating to me. Um, and the vitriol, you said, an, an intense amount of it. Um, uh, it has been ugly on all sides, uh, and, and that's uh, unfortunate. But most of that has been coming from parties who are actually not deeply involved in this issues with the folks I spent time with who are strongly opposed to TMT interactive and that I've had only good interactions with them. It's been more with people who haven't had uh, a strong tie to the issue where the interactions have been in some case, uh, well, certainly inappropriate, if not, if not more than that. So, no, and I, I think that's fair, and that's also a good perspective to have that, um, you know, I I don't want to call out anyone in particular, but I'm aware of at least one uh, celebrity with, uh, with Polynesian roots who has spoken out very loudly about how the TMT will damage the aquifer of, you know, of the big island of Hawaii, um, while simultaneously, um, you know, opening his own line of bottled water to mm. sell 
if anyone is looking for an example of that, I, uh, I, yeah. I sort of encourage you to look a little bit deeper into a certain, um, into a certain celebrity's, you know, misinformation that has perhaps been put out surrounding that. Yeah, and they've declined. We have offered to, as we do with just about anybody who who will take our call. Would you, would you? be open to talking about this? Would you be open to receiving other information? And and they haven't been. So that's frustrating for sure. But you know, Ethan, there's also another voice I wanted to to, to put on your radar. It's the Amua TMT uh, group in Hawaii. I-M-U-A TMT. This is a group of Native Hawaiians who have said, you know, the, the world needs to hear our perspective as well as Native Hawaiians and what we think about astronomy and TMT in particular. So they're yet another voice in the conversation, but they're a large and growing set of Native Hawaiians who are saying, well, we have to speak loudly now because other voices are being loud and people aren't listening to us and hearing that we really support astronomy and TMT and we think this is important for, for us and the future. Now, I know it's a little unfair for me to put you on the spot and ask you to sort of uh, paraphrase what their message is, um, but can you maybe elaborate a little bit as to why they feel that way and what they have to say that is unique? Well, I think their perspective, and again, you know, I, I, I don't want to speak too much for them, but um, that, that their culture, their identity and astronomy on Mauna Kea is completely compatible. And that, yes, in the, amongst their group, there is outrage amongst all of the issues that face Native Hawaiians or face Hawaii today. But they see that that doesn't preclude astronomy or TMT uh, and Mauna Kea. Yeah. I think that thank you for thank you for being willing to even briefly uh, sort of touch on what what that voice is saying. And I, you know, much like you, I'm very much looking forward to the uh, American Astronomical Society's uh, yes. impending meeting where um, many of these issues will come together and open up the opportunity for perhaps uh, an unprecedented level of discussion uh, this January 2020 uh, in in Hawaii. Me too. I think it's a, you know, within our astronomy community, the conversations are certainly overdue and, and we're all going to be exposed to a variety of perspectives in that meeting, including those from Native Hawaiians who strongly support astronomy in Hawaii. So we'll see all of that. Um, and, and that's good. Yeah, I, I agree. So I want to look ahead a little bit towards you know, towards the very unpredictable future. And I wanted to sort of lay out a couple of scenarios and I'd like you to comment on them. Uh, I can, I can envision a scenario where after, you know, many more years of negotiations, and I, I don't see it happening on shorter timescales like that, even though I know that's not what you want to hear, but I can see a scenario unfolding where after many more years of negotiations, um, an agreement is reached where almost no one is left feeling aggrieved, where the stewardship of the mountain is ensured, where TMT gets the go-ahead, and where the indigenous people have the overwhelmingly favorable perspective of TMT and the future of astronomy on Hawaii. If that happens, TMT will absolutely be the last of the three 30 meter class telescopes to be built 
possibly putting it five to ten years behind schedule of the other two. On the other hand, there's a scenario where at any point the negotiations break down one group decides that, you know, it's not in our interest to continue fighting to build TMT in our preferred site on Mauna Kea, and let's move to La Palma, let's try and get all of the current, you know, public and private supporters to continue to support TMT in a new location, um, and the telescope is built and completed on a quicker time scale at a slightly inferior site, but we have it on a much shorter time scale. There are enormous pros and cons to both of these scenarios that that may play out, but I see these two outcomes as the most likely outcome. Would you be willing to speculate as to what ramifications each of these outcomes will have for the future and the the near and far future of astronomy. Well, in your first scenario where, you know, TMT really doesn't start construction on Mauna Kea for some time now and is completed a significant amount of time after the other two 30-meter class uh, observatories begin operations. I mean, you know, there's obviously a new set of discoveries that will happen right away when 30 meter class telescopes open their eyes to the universe but but it won't be the last of them tmt has a 50-year lifetime projected and we're seeing if you look at the the current generation uh, largest telescopes in the world the 10 meter class telescopes how many times this year have you heard of an exciting discovery coming out of keck or the vlt telescopes in chile i mean discoveries continue so there will be plenty to learn even after those initial few years with our eyes on the universe. I said earlier when we were chatting, Eukert still is one of the most productive telescopes in the world. And when did Eukert begin its operations? A long time ago. So, so there's that. Um, do you want to be amongst the folks who are looking at these things for the first time with this capabilities? I mean, sure, absolutely. I'd love to be, love to be uh, at first light of TMT before the other telescopes, but but there's a lot to discover, and, and that'll happen for a long time. Um, and there's, you know, in your scenario there as well, it means that something really good has happened for Hawaii as well. And as I said, that may have ramifications worldwide beyond astronomy for how, how folks, uh, are, are advancing indigenous people issues and solving, solving some of the things that have been, been a problem for humanity for centuries, really. So that's the positive, I guess, if, if you will, on that first scenario. For La Palma, I mean, it's a good site, and there's really good people there too. Um, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm confident we would do good science there if we go there, and and it would be a, a boon for the community that is there as well. So I I don't see negatives of that. You know, I think is I, I don't get to make the decision of what happens next, but it's it's really hard for our partnership to give up on Mauna Kea at this time because of our long history there and because so much of the community, including the native Hawaiian community, is saying to us, please don't go. So it's not just driven by science anymore. It's driven by the fact that if there's a human element and folks are saying there, please stay with us because it's important for Hawaii. It's important for the future. 
So I don't know, you know, you didn't, the question you didn't ask me is what is actually going to happen? And I honestly don't know. And I don't know when we will know. Um, both of those scenarios have a positive outcome in my mind. And, and, and I hope that's where we end up. Yeah, it sounds like it sounds like the question I didn't ask, which is the question you already have an answer to, is uh, it sounds like the question in your mind that I'm beating around the bush with is, hey, for this telescope, do you want it done fast or do you want it done right? And doing it right doesn't mean building this telescope to the correct specifications. Doing this right means all of a sudden um, weaving together this uh, partnership between astronomy and all Hawaiians in a way that um, in a way that benefits everyone involved in a way that benefits the indigenous people, the indigenous populations of Hawaii economically, culturally, um, and, and, um, you know, by any other metric you can, you can say in addition to benefiting the astronomy community, the industry, the educational opportunities for all people, um, in, in sort of this maximal way. If, That's right. Oh, go yeah. ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, no, that's right. But but what that looks like, I, you know, I still don't know. Um, this is another thing that that I, I think is not well understood outside of Hawaii is is that protests and opposition to things is very common in Hawaii, as are peaceful arrests. And so, is there a scenario where where that will never be necessary? I hope so. Uh, is Are there scenarios where there are still going to be some people opposing at the end of the day? Probably. And and where is that place where we can agree that this is, uh, this is acceptable or this is okay, or we've got to where we need to be for now? I, I don't know what that looks like. No, but I'm, I'm going to ask you a difficult question that you, you might not know, but if you could say, okay, the ideal outcome that I'm envisioning, that, that if you look ahead over the next year or a couple of years and you say, I, this is what I want to happen. It's been, it's been a long and difficult struggle to sort of find the right path forward that's going to lead to that optimal outcome. I know it's very difficult to ask because of the number of times just in this conversation alone that you've said you don't know what that looks like, but I'm, I'm going to press and I'm going to ask you if you could envision the outcome that you see as the ideal one, what are all of the things that you see would get accomplished over the next year or two that would lead down what you would determine, what you would rate as the ideal outcome? Hmm. <laughs> well, good question. Um, for my community, for the astronomy community, starting there, I, I would say a, a real deeper understanding of not just issues in Hawaii, but what it means to uh, have facilities on mountaintops worldwide and some real critical thinking. Uh, I've been disappointed at times with my colleagues about the the lack of critical thinking and and investigation about 
what is actually happening beyond what you see in social media. So an ideal outcome for me would be a renaissance of critical thinking in the astronomy community and a deep examination of what it means to build uh, telescopes on mountains around the world. That's one. I would say I hope in Hawaii that true advances are made on these bigger issues outside of Mauna Kea and with Mauna Kea as well. But but issues about management of Hawaiian homelands, uh, access to Hawaiian homelands for Hawaiians, amongst many other things, that, that these issues get addressed in a substantial way and that Hawaiians feel more enfranchised and part of the community in a way that is appropriate for them as a sovereign people with self-determination. And of course, I would like to see the telescope built and started soon. So the... I. Is there a way that things, these things can all happen in parallel, starting on a sooner timescale? I don't know. Maybe. Uh, or does it really, as you said, take years? Maybe. Um, but my ideal scenario would be all of the, we get to a place where there's enough trust, maybe, that we can say, okay, let's, let's take a step and trust that we'll get there, but let's let all these things get started. That's probably way too naive to expect will happen, but that would be an ideal scenario for Hawaii. If Hawaii isn't going to work, then I would hope that um, that you know, in a timely fashion, we get uh, get the telescope started in La Palma, and working with the good people there who strongly support the project, and uh, where again they have seen we've done everything right there in order to do this, and will stay with us in, in the future. So, so La Palma is maybe a little bit easier uh, in that sense, but but. But how we get to either one of those, I still don't know, Ethan. <laughs> if you could tell me, you, I will sleep better tonight. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know what the answer is, obviously, because if I did, I would have done everything in my power already to help bring it about. But yeah. I do very much appreciate you taking the time and the energy to spend this time with us here on the Starts With a Bang podcast to make us aware of some aspects of the issues surrounding, you know, the Northern Hemisphere's only next generation 30 meter class telescope and to and to share your perspective with us. We know that there are so many fantastic things out there to explore in unprecedented details some of things some things that are out there that we know must be out there that this next generation of telescopes is going to discover if things go as they're currently going both gmt and elt will come online and be completed at some point in the mid 2020s although the exact dates are still you know up for grabs because you know no one can fully predict the future um i think unless tmt you know begins construction over the next year or two max it's looking at a much later start date possibly not even until the 2030s although we we all hope it's sooner than that but i'm also really on board with this idea that if we can do things right we will not only you know ensure the future partnership of astronomy and native populations together but this can serve as the blueprint for how to take a very culturally sensitive issue that has, you know, disproportionately affected an indigenous population and move forward in a positive, powerful and productive way. I think that's my biggest hope that that I hope is the outcome of all of this. Um, so, Gordon, thank you for joining us so much. Um, is there 
or do you have any final thoughts uh, that you would like to leave our listeners with? Well, I appreciate the opportunity to uh, chat with you, Ethan. And I think we covered a lot of territory. There's there's a lot to uncover. Um, our story is is uh, is available online at monakea and tmt.org. I encourage people to at least see our story there and uh, do investigations on their own and become informed and engaged and hopefully we'll go together towards a better future. Yeah, I love the idea that we can all move farther if we go together rather than the idea of moving faster and, you know, trampling the rights or self-determination of some in pursuit of a goal that maybe doesn't involve everybody. So I, I really appreciate this perspective and the idea that that this does not have to be either you side with astronomers or you side with the indigenous population, that it's possible to do both and that actually doing both is the right way to go about moving forward. Thank you. I agree. All right. Well, thank you for joining us and thank you all for tuning in. The Starts With a Bang podcast is only made possible through the generous donations of our Patreon supporters. And I'd like to thank everyone who donates to us at the $5 a month level and above. Thanks go to Chad Marler, Samir Kumar, Aaron Weiss, Charles Buchanan, Jeffrey David Maraccini, Robert J. Hansen, Peter Smoyer, Paulina Barron, Stefan Berniger, Jean Van Balaguyen, Dominic Turpin, Tim Graham, John Methot, Pavel Zuzelski, Thomas Sola, Frank, Eric Brown, Pedro Texera, Igor Mitrofanov, Laird W.H., Ahmed Lee Comsey, Sean Foley, Denier, Sergei Gordienko, Joseph Dvorak, Juan Jose Gomez Garcia, Punitive Expedition, Patrick Dennis, Jens Kroger, Mark Armstrong, Jose Enrique, Sean Foley, Flo, Richard Jousey, John Kozura, Marcelo Barnaba, Rafal Wojtschuk, Danny, Chris Hilly, Jason McCampbell, Weller Tractor Salvage, Sam Terzakian, James Page, Jeff Renike, James Fitzwater, Tina Tallon, Rich Weigel, Christoph Hip, Rushin Shah, Alan Parikh, Inga Strumke, Alfredo Vivanco, Chris Jakutas, Adrian Griffiths, William Blair, Jason Luttrell, Brainwise, Ken Blackman, Pierre Franson, Dick Pills, Hennacon, J Andrew Jason, Mark Langstam, David Krampotic, Randall Slimak, Jerry Wilterding, Tom Van Scotter, Michael Lewis, Mike, Amy Thompson, Dana Bridges, Kelly Kudrick, Richard Schwartz, Darren Redfern, Mark Bloor, Fraser Kane, Steve Shaber, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Jason Bassanskeny, Kevin Barnes, Radek Nesbitta, James Nance, Sidney Atwood, Nathan Hanna, Tomas Hall, Glenn McDavid, Benhead, David Taschioni, and Philip Radilovic. Thanks to everyone for tuning in, and I'll see you next time here for more Starts with a Bang. Starts with a Bang.